Lord, we're just so grateful again for how good you are, for your grace and your mercy upon us. Thank you for what we got to witness this morning and two uh, of your kids following you in baptism today. And Lord, I pray that you'd help every single one of us to come to the table this morning with a heart to learn and to grow and to follow you uh, as you speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, as we open up your word, uh, I pray that your spirit would just speak to us in a big way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things I hope you hear us talk about a lot around here is this idea of grace. I hope you hear us talk a lot about that. I feel like we talk a lot about it. I hope more than just hearing us talk about grace, that you, ex- you sense and experience grace in, in, in within this church. Uh, you know, grace is, it's, it's really, it's God's goodness flowing to us, flowing from him straight to us, not earned, not deserved, but freely given. And, you know, I remember when we would talk about, you know, in, in, in Bible college, you know, mercy and grace, two of these descriptors of God and his character. We even saw that in, in Jonah as well, that God is gracious and yet he's merciful. And, and one of the ways I remember this is mercy is not getting what you deserve, whereas grace is getting what you don't deserve. Okay, so mercy is, you know, I deserve judgment and wrath, but I don't receive that. Whereas grace is, I get what I don't deserve. I get the abundant love of God lavished on me. And you've heard me use this acronym before for grace. Okay, so G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense, which really when we talk about grace, we talk about God's goodness. It comes to us through the person and the work of Jesus, that at his expense, the, the cost of his life, we get to receive the goodness of God. And, and this is really just another way that we use to describe what we call the gospel, the good news, that though we're sinners, we can receive the goodness of, of God. But there's, there's one thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, and I want to talk about this morning, and it's, it's, it's an important component that I think sometimes gets lost in the mix and it's what we call sin. Sin, which is, is our offense against God. And I don't know how many of you, if you grew up in church, you know, a lot of churches, and I feel like this was my experience a lot, was we talk about sin a lot. And we focus on how bad we are and how wretched we are and how miserable we are. And all of that is true. But sometimes it feels like the focus is always on our badness. And so I, I feel like for me, maybe as I've thought through this as a pastor, you know, I think maybe there's a tendency for me to overcorrect. And so we talk about grace and love and all these things more. And, and, but here's, here's the reality is both of those things are important things that we, we talk about. In fact, they're connected. I would say it this way. If, if we're really going to comprehend the goodness of God's grace, we must comprehend the atrocity of our sin. And I use that word atrocity, it means how awful and how offensive and how destructive. In fact, I think the reason that word atrocity or atrocious is in my mind is because, because of this weekend. We're celebrating or remembering um, 9-11, 20 years ago. And in the course of my lifetime, you know, I've seen, as I know you have, you've seen a lot of evil and wickedness, but if there's one event in my mind, in my lifetime, where I've, I felt like, man, I just witnessed like pure evil, 
It was on September 11th. And so I have that, the, the atrocity of, of, of sin and evil and wickedness. And I, you know, we, we watched this um, inside the president's war room on Apple TV uh, the other night, and it's, it, it's really well done. But man, every time I see this footage and I'm reminded of, of what happened on that day 20 years ago, which seems like it was just yesterday in some ways, but I'm just again brought back to like the atrocity of sin, how wicked and evil. This is such an affront to a good and holy God. And I think any of us could look at that event and look at the, the activity of that day and, and go, man, that is pure sin. That is pure evil and wickedness. But very rarely would any of us ever connect the atrocity of that sin with our own offense against the holy God. What I mean is, is this, that every single sin that we commit is just as atrocious to our holy God as those events were to us. Our sin is such an offense to God. And, and there's this quote that I've been thinking about over the last few weeks with this in mind. And it's by an old 17th century English Puritan. His name was Thomas Watson. The, the quote is this, Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And, and what that means is that the more, the more that we grow in our faith, the more that we comprehend and understand and grapple with like our, our sinfulness and our depravity, the more we realize that our sin is, is so bitter in the mouth of our God, the more we grow in that, the more we understand how sweet is Christ in his grace towards us, that we, with all of our sinfulness, that he could love us and forgive us and cleanse us and make us brand new. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be Sweet, and, and we're getting ready to go into this ten weeks of this study called Gentle and Lowly, and we're gonna we're gonna try to dive deep into the heart of Christ for us sinners and sufferers, and, and my goal today really is is to help set us up for this series, so that 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 we can have a fuller appreciation of the tender heart of Christ for us, us sinners and us sufferers. And so what I want to do this morning to help us kind of go back to and remember and grasp some of this, this, this idea of sin is I want to go back to Genesis. And so we're going to, I'm calling this morning the gospel in Genesis 1 through 3. And, and here's the deal. I don't want to focus on, on just sin this morning without seeing the big picture, without seeing the whole picture. Because the reality is that sin doesn't stand alone. It's not just an action that we commit and it's not just a, a nature that we possess, but it's, it's, part of, it's part of the story of God. And so you, you may have heard me kind of refer to this before, but when we talk about the story of God or the gospel story, it's, it really fleshes out in four parts. If you were to boil the whole scripture, the whole story of God into four parts, it goes like this. Creation, the fall, rescue, and restoration. Creation, fall, rescue, restoration. And this is really the story of the Bible from beginning to end. And it's a story that we find ourselves in. And so what I want to do is, is I just want to read through a few passages, passages in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. 
And I want us to see the gospel at play because most of you, especially if you've ever tried to do a, a you know, Bible reading plan or you tried to read through the Bible in a year, maybe you've been able to accomplish that. Maybe you've stalled out in you know, Leviticus or somewhere around those parts. You've probably read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 multiple times. You're probably aware of, of the context there. But what we see in those first few chapters of the Bible is this is where um, we see God creating he creates the world in, in six days, and on the seventh day is Sabbath rest. And we see he creates um, all things. He creates man and woman on the sixth day, and this is the context. And so I want to jump into this first part as we look at creation, fall, rescue, restoration in these first few chapters. Uh, first, we see creation. We, cre- we see creation in Genesis 1 in chapter 2. So I just want to read through a few verses here. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verses 26. This is when God, in, in community with himself, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, has this conversation. And God says in verse 26, Let us, speaking to the Trinity, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so God creates man and woman. And then if we go forward a few verses, Genesis chapter 2, I want to read verses 15 through 18. It says here that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And so this is quite literally creation, the creation of man and woman, the creation of humankind here. And I want, to, I want to just note a few things as we've, we've kind of read through these verses. We see in, in creation, God, he, he creates man, but he gives purpose to man. He gives purpose to humans. It, it says that he made us in God's image. He made Adam and Eve in God's image. And that he gives them a, a work to do. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then Genesis 2.15, he says he places them in this garden, the Garden of Eden, so that they would work it and keep it. And so he gives them a task. He gives them a work. He gives them a mission. You know, often when we think of work, you know, when I think of work sometimes when I'm just like fed up with work and I'm like, darn you, Adam, you cursed me with work. But, but work came before the fall. In fact, it was part of God's commission. He, he created us to work. Now, Adam's sin caused work to be toil and by the sweat of our brow, and it's, it's hard, but, but work is part of God's good creation and purpose for us. He gives purpose to man. And then he, we see that God gives abundantly for our joy. 
Okay, so when you, when you see God, it says in, in chapter 2 and verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. And so sometimes we think that God is this cosmic killjoy that he's like, Hey, don't do anything. Don't have any fun. But it says here that God said, Hey, you can eat of every single tree of this garden. It is, this is all yours to enjoy. And so he gives abundantly for our joy. And he provides all of this for man and woman to enjoy in the garden. But along with that, he gives an abundance for our joy, but he also gives restrictions for our good. What you see here is he says that you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So he gives them one restriction. He says, don't eat of this one tree. But it wasn't to, to kill their joy. It was to protect them. It was to help them. It was to help them enjoy all that he had created them for. And so he says, don't eat of this one tree. You can have at the rest of this garden, but here's this one restriction. But then you also see that, that God gives or he provides help and companionship for the work. Now, I love this as a, as a married man. I like to go back to this. I'm like, God, thank you for providing me with an Eve of my own, right? But, but he says in Genesis 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. And a lot of times we'll go, Exactly. We're created for community. We're for created for relationship and for friendship. And that is absolutely true. But don't miss the second part of this. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So God provides help and companionship for the work. He doesn't say, hey, I just, I'm going to give you this woman so that you can have a, a, a companion, a friend, a lover, no, he says, I am making you someone who will help you to accomplish the work that I've given you. And so companionship and help always go hand in hand. This is why when we talk about our mission statement, it's to help people find full life in Christ, community, and mission. Those three, those three things are all intertwined. You, community and mission have to go together. We do this together as the people of God, as the family of God. And so God gives them a work to do. He gives them a mission, but he also provides the help and companionship for the work at hand. And so this is this whole creation narrative that, that, that we understand that God gave us purpose. God gave us God gives to us abundantly for our joy, but he also provides restrictions for our good and then he gives us the help and companionship we need for the sake of the work he's given us. So this is creation. But then as we move into chapter 3, we see what we call the fall. The fall. And this is all about when sin entered into the picture. When sin entered literally into creation, into the world. And I want to read Genesis 3 verses 1 through 8 as we see the, the fall take place. Starting verse number one, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. 
But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so I want to take a couple minutes here because this is where, where sin enters in. This is, the fall is all about sin and it's all about, you know, you've heard the term fall from grace. This is literally what we see here. They are falling from grace. They have stepped into this world of, of sin. And what we understand about sin, if we just, if we were just going off of this passage alone, Genesis chapter three, we see some things about sin. Like, first of all, sin is, is disobedience to God's word, right? So God gives them instruction. He gives them restriction it's very clear, it's very simple, and yet what Adam and Eve do is they say, okay, well, we're going to do this instead. And they've disobeyed God's word. And so anytime that you and I step outside of what God has created us for, when we go our own way, when we make our own decision apart from what God has said, and that includes in thought, when, when God says, here's how I want you to think, and we think outside of God's design for us, it goes for word, when God says, this is how you ought to speak to one another. And when we step outside of that and we speak in a way that isn't consistent with how God has created us to be, we sin. It's thought, it's word, it's also indeed. When God says, here's how you're to act and behave and live and treat one another. And when we step outside of that, we sin. And so sin is, is quite simply disobedience to what God has said to his word. But we also see in this passage that sin is submitting to the logic of the enemy, submitting to the logic of the enemy. I, like I'm, I'm always amazed at how simple this is, but the enemy comes, the serpent comes, and all he does is this. He does the same thing God does. He presents a question, but he does it in a way that questions God. He, he says, is, is this really what God said? Did God really say this? I don't think that means what you think it means, because you're, you're not going to die. God knows that you're gonna be, your eyes are going to be open. And, he, and there's this logic that kind of talks them out of obeying what God has said. And so for you and I, and I think about my own life. I don't know if you have this where there's times where it's like you know the right thing to do. And you, like in your mind, you kind of talk yourself out of it a little bit. You're like, well, is it really that big of a deal? Is it really that bad? Okay, if I say this, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to tear anybody down. I'm just speaking truth. You, you, like, we have these ways of, like, talking around. This isn't gossip. This is a prayer request, right? We have these ways of, like, giving into the logic of the enemy. And when we do that, we sin. We sin. So that's, that's another thing we see here is this, the enemy comes and he's, he's bringing questions. He's causing doubt. 
Sin we also see here is, is giving in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And I want to go back and look at 1 John 2.16. I want to quote this out of the King James Version, which is where I learned it. It's, it's very similar to the ESV, which I use now, but it says this. All that is in the world, here, here's everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but it is of the world. In the ESV, it just uses the word desires instead of lust. But, but what we see here is that in, in this world, this physical world in which we live, the, the things that we fight against are the lusts of the flesh, and, and we see this in Eve. She, she saw this fruit looked good. She's like, hmm, that looks good. I want it. The, the lust of the eyes, which is seeing something and, and desiring it and wanting to have it. The lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, and the pride of life. It says, seeing that it was going to be, uh, what's it say here in verse number, verse number 16, verse number 6, Genesis 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, then she took. So it's like she's fighting the lust of the flesh and the lust of her eyes and this pride of life that says, hey, I want to be wise. I want to be like God. And so she gives in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And so often this is us on a day-to-day basis. Our, our, our bodily appetites want something and so we take it. Our eyes see something we want and so we take it. Our pride says, hey, you can have that. You can, you can take it. You can build yourself up and we take it. And when we give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, we sin just like Adam and Eve. But what else we see in here is that you see the response of, of Adam and Eve. So once Adam and Eve figured out, once their eyes were opened and they realized they were naked, what did they do? You see what they did? It says they began to, this was the first apparently sewing activity in all of scripture. Right? They sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So here's the truth that we see about sin is that sin drives you to work to cover up your sin. Sin drives us to work to cover up our sin, that we have our own ways of trying to cover up and put on a mask and and hide. Unfortunately, it happens all too often on, on Sundays that for some of us, listen, we're called to come and gather and worship together and we need this time together. But if you come to church so that you can check off a box, so that you can feel good that you've been to church, what we're doing is a religious way of sowing our own fig leaves to try to cover up our sin and to try to cover up our brokenness. And flowing right out of that, we see in verse 8 that sin drives you into hiding from God. Because as Adam and Eve realize their sinfulness and they're working, they're working to try to cover up their sin. And again, we do this. We try to do good things, even, even godly things. We try to do good things to cover up our sin. And ultimately what we do is we end up trying to hide from God. And as Adam and Eve were in the garden, it says they heard the voice of God coming. And what they do? Man, they, they headed for the hills. They were hiding amongst the trees of the garden. They did not want to be found. And so they hid. And sin drives us to do the same thing. When we sin, sometimes, man, we just want to hide from God. 
We want to get away. We don't, we, we don't want to deal with it. We hope God somehow missed it. Sin drives you into hiding from God. And so if there's anything that you're trying to hide from other people, it's probably an indicator that that's, that's sin that needs to be confessed and forsaken. And so we see this, this fall take place in the life of Adam and Eve, and this, this sin is, is atrocious in the sight of God who has just created them for abundant joy and for purpose and for companionship for the work that he has created them for. And they have stepped outside of it and said, no, we want to do our own thing because we think it's going to fulfill us. And so we see sin enter the world. And the reason I hate to just focus on sin is because we don't, we don't want to be left there because the gospel is about the fact that there is rescue from sin. There is a way out of sin. There is a cure for the fall. And so as we look at rescue, I want to read the rest of this passage in Genesis 3 from verses 8, which we started in, to verse number 21. And I just want to make a few observations on this. But if you look back again in verse number 8, it says, They heard the voice or the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And so God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you, whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. And so the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and Eve, and for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. And so I just want, I want you to see the rescue here because so often in the story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see creation. It's very obvious, right? God creates heaven and earth and everything in it, man and woman. We see the fall because we see the serpent slither in and deceive the woman and the man, and they take of the fruit and they sin. And so we see creation, we see the fall, but we don't often think about there being rescue 
here. This is just the very beginning of the, the Bible, right? This is the very entrance in of sin. And so the rest of the Old Testament we see until the time of Jesus is the struggle with sin. And so rarely do we see rescue in the midst of this. But I want you to see the gospel in Genesis chapter 3. What we see here is we see, much like we saw in the book of Jonah, that God pursues and calls out to us. Listen, even in our hiding, God comes and he calls out. It says that he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And did you catch what he said? Did you hear the question he asked? He said, where are you? Where are you? He comes seeking his creation, even in the midst of their sin, even in the midst of their hiding. And God comes, don't miss this, he comes seeking confession. He comes seeking confession. He doesn't come condemning. Okay, so God knew exactly where they were, right? He knew exactly where they were. It wasn't like, here comes God, and he's like, hmm, I wonder where they are, like we do with kids playing hide and seek. Like, I have no idea that you're behind that drape that's bulging out, right? I have no, like, God didn't stroll into the garden and go, where did those silly kids go, all right? He knew where they were, and he knew what they had done, but he asks them. He doesn't condemn them. He says, hey, what have you done? What have you done? He says, where are you? And then he asks, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And so God said, who told you? Who told you this? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of that tree? And so he asks him. He's not coming condemning. And this is the way that he always works. He comes to pursue us, but then he, he's seeking confession. He's giving us an opportunity to come clean, to confess, to put it all out on the table, right? What have you done? Who told you? And, and you know, Adam and Eve, they don't, they don't respond really well to this, right? They don't come clean. What do they do? That woman you gave me, she did it. She made me do it. The woman says, that serpent, he deceived me. He made me eat. So they do this, you know, finger pointing, this blame shifting, which we tend to do with our sin. We're like, well, if he had done this or if she hadn't provoked me or if this wasn't the, the, the circumstances, we blame shift and we don't own it. And this is all that God was looking for. He was looking for confession. So he pursues and he calls out he seeks confession from them. He asks Eve as well. He says, what is this that you've done? He's giving them an opportunity to own up to their sin, to their offense. And what we see here is, we won't walk through this, but you know, God first warned them of the consequences. He said, if you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Now, in chapter 3, he kind of walks through. He confirms, here's the consequences of your sin and he tells them all about what they're going to face because of the fall. But even in the midst of this, and I know you heard me talk about this before, but even in the midst of this, as he's talking about the consequences of their sin, 
he points to the hope of the gospel. Right in the middle is Genesis 3, verse 15. This is what we call, you've heard me use this term before, in theological terms, we call this the proto-evangelium. This is like a prototype. It's the gospel before the gospel. The first mention, the first inkling of the gospel is this in In verse number 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and and her offspring. And he's speaking to Christ. He says that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And he's speaking forward. This is a prophecy about the coming Messiah who his heel was going to be bruised on the cross where it appeared like all was lost. But Christ through the resurrection was going to crush the head of the enemy. And even in the midst of this declaration of, here's the consequences of your sin, he's pointing forward to the hope of the gospel. He's pointing forward to this hope. And what you see here is that in this very last verse, I want to read it one more time Genesis 3, verse 21, it says this The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. Here's what happens. He's, he's pointing forward to this hope, even in the midst of their sin, even in the consequences of their sin. He's pointing forward to this hope that will come. But here's what he does. He provides a garment of skin to clothe them and to cover them. And so listen, what were those skins made of? Okay, what did they make, what did they make their covering of? Adam and Eve used fig leaves, right? Here it says that he's provided for his, Adam and his wife, garments of skins, and he clothed them. So what is, what is a garment of skin made of? An animal, right? So the first death you see, it should have been who? Who should have died first? Adam and Eve. But the first death we see in the scripture is not the death of Adam and Eve, the offenders, the sinners. The first death we see is the death of the substitute that was going to cover over the sin and the nakedness of the sinners. And even in the midst of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, we see sin enter in. We see the fall occur. But even in the midst of this, God is giving us the shadow of this one who would be a substitute. This one who God would kill upon a cross to provide a a, a garment, a covering for sin through the blood of Jesus. Even in the midst of this, God is a rescuer. Y'all see that? Our God is a God of rescue. And so even in the midst of the atrocity of sin, the offense of sin against this holy God, God is making a way, God is providing a way of forgiveness of sin. And so we have creation, we have fall, we have the rescue. The fourth and final movement of the gospel story is restoration And I'm not going to spend really any time here because we don't get to see this play out in the book of of Genesis. The restoration in the story of God is when, here's what happens. It all ends up back here in the book of Revelation. It all ends back in this garden city where God has, 
has provided rescue through Jesus where God has come and he has set up this new heaven and this new earth and he's made all things right. And every son and daughter of God, the whole family of God is around the throne of God, worshiping him for all of eternity. This is the restoration. This is when everything is restored to the way it was originally intended to be back in the creation. So we could call this like the recreation. This is when, this is the happily ever after. We don't get to see that play out in Genesis, but we see it come full circle in the scriptures that it ends up back here in this garden city. And so I work through all of that this morning because I just want us to be reminded of, I want us to remember that sin is, is part of this human story. It's part of our story, right? And we can't, we can't brush it off. We can't ignore it. We can't ignore our, our own sinfulness because we have offended God and we, we need forgiveness and we need cleansing. And the more that we comprehend our own sinfulness, the more and more amazed we will be at the grace of God. And I don't know if you, if you feel this way, but for me, as I grow in my relationship with God, you know, there was a day when if I would say something or think something or do something sinful, I would feel, I would feel like a tinge of guilt or conviction or I'd feel bad. Um, but sometimes I could just brush it off easily. But I feel like the more and more I grow in my faith, man, the second there's conviction from the Holy Spirit that I've said something or done something or thought something sinful, man, there's this bitterness in my soul, this bitterness that, that I've sinned against this holy God who loves me and he gave his life for me. And sin becomes more and more bitter in my mouth. And the more that sin, our sin, your sin becomes bitter to you, the more sweet Christ and his grace will be to you. And our sin is great, but praise the Lord, his grace is greater. Amen. I want to read you one quote here, and then we're going to worship for a few more minutes. This is a quote from, from a theologian, J.I. Packer, and he says this. It's, this will be on the screen for you. He defines atonement. Atonement means making amends, blotting out the offense, and giving satisfaction for wrong done, thus reconciling to oneself the alienated other and, the rest, and restoring the disrupted relationship. Scripture depicts all human beings as needing to atone for their sins, but lacking all power and resources for doing so. We all need to atone for our sins, but we don't have the ability, the power to do so. We have offended our holy creator, whose nature it is to hate sin and to punish it. No acceptance by or fellowship with such a God can be expected unless atonement is made. And since there is sin and even our best actions, listen, we, because of our nature, there's sin and even our best intentions and actions. And because of that, anything we do in hopes of making amends can only increase our guilt or worsen our situation. This makes it ruinous folly to seek to establish one's own righteousness before God. It simply cannot be done. We cannot atone for our own sin. We cannot cleanse or wipe away our own sin. But against this background of human hopelessness, Scripture sets forth the love, grace, mercy, 
pity, kindness, and compassion of God, the offended creator in himself providing the atonement that our sin has made necessary. This amazing grace is the focal center of New Testament faith, hope, worship, ethics, and spiritual life. From Matthew to Revelation, it shines out with breathtaking glory. Can you all say amen to amazing grace today? And here is my hope that as we enter into this this study and the series over the next 10 weeks, as we look at the tender heart of Christ for us as sinners and sufferers, man, let's, let's realize the cost that he paid at great price to him to forgive us of the atrocity, the wickedness, the evil of our sin because he loves us so deeply. Till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so, Lord, this morning, I do want to say thank you for the sweetness of Christ. Lord, my hope is that we would taste and see this morning that the Lord is good, that despite our sin, despite our wickedness, despite our rebellion against you, God, each and every single day it occurs and... Lord, sometimes we realize it, sometimes we don't. Lord, if we were to weigh our offenses, past, present, future, and there's no scale in the world that could measure the weight and the depth of our sin and our offense against you. And yet, God, I wanna say thank you today that the fall wasn't the end of the story that there is rescue, that you came, that you provided the means of covering, you provided the means of removing our guilt, you provided the means of atonement through the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, through the resurrection of Christ, we could experience life abundant and eternal. So God, thank you for the rescue that we have in Christ. And I pray that as we, as we move into the season of looking at the gentle and lowly heart of Christ for us, God, would you continually bring us back to the reality of how much you have paid to free us, the, the, the love that you have for us that would, that would send you toward us and not away from us. And so God, I pray that we would continue to recognize our sinfulness and even more than that, that we would come to appreciate the goodness of your grace. And so today we worship you because of that goodness. In your name we pray.